So, John's asked us to look at encounters with Jesus. And I I gather we're going to look at a few over a period of time. Now, there's different ways of doing this. Um, There's looking at each encounter on its own and seeing what each one says. And the other thing is to take a more global view, a bigger view, and say, is there any similarities between these encounters between Jesus? So what I'm going to do this morning is ask you to look for themes that come up in all these encounters. So you can start saying, ah, Jesus had a style here that you can see. Now, when we come to look at this particular passage, um, it has to be in every uh, speaker or preacher's top 50 of the best possible to be given to speak on. You know, I mean, this is we could spend a whole year looking at just this passage. And we're going to spend just two, no, um, how long we spend this morning? Just a few minutes this morning looking at this passage. So there's an awful lot going to get left out. And it, you can divide it really into, into like three sections. There's one that teaches you theologically. If God is spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and truth. I, I would love to go there. It's absolutely, that's, uh, it's really thrilling what's here. There's one that teaches you socially. Because there's a lot of social interaction going on here. And there's what you can see psychologically or interpersonally going on between Jesus and this woman. And each of those three areas are fascinating. Um, And it shows you how carefully the scriptures were written, that that it's all in there. But what I want to do, I want to use this this morning to challenge us with just one thought. Because this is highly complicated, but one thought to take away. And that thought is the thought of challenge. Every time you look or we hear a story about Jesus, I'd like you to ask yourself, is there a challenge here? And I think you're going to find that more often than not, an encounter with Jesus leads to a challenge in some way or another. You met him, you were challenged. You read about him now. And you were challenged. And that's certainly, for me, the key, uh, the, mo- the best part of this story, if you like, is the level of challenge that happens here. And how, how colossal it was. And the, 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 after, uh, the after story. And of course, the story doesn't end here. If you go into Acts, you find that in Acts, they go through Samaria. And they have this amazing, great revival in Samaria, which almost certainly came from, from this. So this is the start, really, of a huge revival and how this, uh, this big revival starts with this one woman, <clears throat> one woman at a well and, and what appears to be a chance encounter uh, between Jesus and this one person at the well. So don't despise small things. You know, the one thing you say to one small person can go on and have such a tremendous, huge effect. Okay, so challenge. We're looking at challenge. Um, and the challenge in here is pretty in your face. We'll come to it in a minute. But it, it's a big challenge. Now, when we look at challenge, there are other words for challenge. And um, I've not been slow over my, my lifetime of, of, of uh, studying the scriptures to point out where I think there are errors. And major errors, in fact, in translations. And we have a, a long Western history of, of, of the gospel. And in there are a lot of embedded errors. Sorry, but they are there. One of, the, one of my famous ones, or favorite ones, is the word lambano, uh, in, in, which talks about um, 
you take. But when you come to the Holy Spirit, it always says, receive. You don't receive the Spirit. You take the Spirit. That's the Greek word. It's been mistranslated because of political situations at the time of King James. But there we are. Another word that is misused, misunderstood, and I think has a huge effect if you, if you start seeing it in its context, is the word repent. Right? Now, repent, if you go and look up the etymology, which is the meaning of where our word came from, the word repent, re, we know what that means, uh, to do again, and it comes from Old French and Old Greek, from the word pentare, which means to feel sorry for. We use it for the word penitentiary which is a place you, you say people to be sorry for. So repent means to keep on being sorry. So this is a risk. Um, a number of you are looking at your mobile phones. How many of you can get onto Google now? Come on, I know you can. Don't all get rid of you. Is anybody here can get onto Google now? Right, go onto Google now. Put in, what is the Greek meaning of the word Repent. What is the Greek meaning of the word repent? And it's a funny question because it's taking the Greek word, turning it into English and turning it back into Greek. Who gets there first? What is the Greek meaning of the word repent? I'm doing this just to show this is not my wacky idea. We're asking Google. Who's found it? What is the Greek meaning of the word repent? Change of mind. What have you found? I'll read it, read it from the top, from, from that bit there. The Greek Orthodox Church in America, it actually says. Right? The Greek, so we found the bit that is, you, we've been directed to the Greek Orthodox Church in America. Right. Number one, these are English speakers, because it's America. Number two, this is the Greek Orthodox Church. In other words, they understand Greek. Why? Because they're Greek. And they've got this Greek history. Could someone read the, the, the passage that says the Greek Orthodox Church in America? What? The Greek Orthodox Church in America teaches that the Greek term for repentance, metanoia, denotes a change of mind, a reorientation, a fundamental transformation of outlook of man's vision of the world and of himself and a new way of loving others and God. Anything there about being sorry? No. Anything there about sitting in dust and ashcloth and feeling you've done everything wrong? No. The word which we translate repent comes from this Greek word metanoia, which means to change your viewpoint. That's what it means. So when we, you read it, repent and believe in the scriptures, it's basically saying change your mind. It's not on about being sorry at all. Now, that may come, if you've done something wrong and you change your mind, well, of course you'll feel sorry. But the actual root, the root meaning is to change your mind. So if I ask you to change your mind, I am challenging you. I can't ask you to change your mind unless I challenge you. So the root of the gospel, the root way into the gospel is to challenge people and to ask them to change their minds. That is how people become Christians. Challenged, change your mind. If I'm going to challenge you and change your mind, I have to indicate that you might not be right. I have to indicate that you might be in the wrong place. 
Now, metaneo is a compound word from the word meta, which means uh, made with, and nouia, which means mind. So even in the root Greek, it's shouting at you. It means change your mind. So that's what the Christian gospel is based upon. So as you see these stories of Jesus, now we, we talk about Jesus, keep looking all the time for the number of places, the number of times Jesus is actually asking you to change your mind, change what you think, change your belief, change your position. Can anybody see a problem here today? Political correctness? Completely the opposite to what the Christian gospel teaches. You have to accept somebody else's viewpoint and see that it's culturally different and make grounds for them to do what they want to do. This this is a brief aside now. I I just want to put this in to to give you a little bit of uh, background so we can see how this problem is. Anybody heard of uh, a Russian guy called Fyodor Dostoevsky? Yeah? Who's heard of Dostoevsky? Okay. Okay, Dostoevsky is one of the um, Russian greatest ever writers. Probably there's two that stand out that hit you in the face, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were Christian apologists. Okay? They were there to promote Christianity. Um, Tolstoy, at the end of his life, wrote a book called The Kingdom of God, in which he, he... just evangelically proposes Christianity. Dostoevsky, at the end of his life, said he only wrote in order to portray who Christ was. So that's the background of the, these two Russian writers. Dostoevsky, in reading it in Russian, is no difficult than reading Dickens. And many of the modern translations are very easy to read. Yet today, you will not see either of these people taught in schools in, in anywhere. Why? Probably because of what they're saying. Dostoevsky um, was born and lived and died within two years of Marx, Karl Marx. I think Dostoevsky was born, I think it was 1821, and Karl Marx, I think, was born about 1818, 1816, that sort of time. But they were were contemporaries. Um, And they were both addressing the same problems. And if you read Crime and Punishment, which is one of Dostoevsky's famous books, he's talking all the time about the nature of crime and the, the theory that was coming out at the time, which, of course, Marx picks up on, is that crime is due to the environment. If you get the environment right, there will be no crime. So crime is only due to, to, to the wrong environment. And there are discussions about this in Crime and Punishment. Now, if you think about that, what that's actually saying is there's no such thing as sin. Because it's not your fault. It was the environment. And the way to change the human society is to just change the environment and there's no, there's no sin. Dostoevsky makes the point that um, crime is due to individual responsibility. This, this, the root cause of, 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 of crime is individuality, individual responsibility. And in um, Crime and Punishment, there's, there's a, a couple, well, there's more than one, but there's one particular passage in which um, he has, in his story, he has a, a, a young girl called uh, uh, Sonia, who is a young girl at 18, 19, who's gone into prostitution as the only way of feeding her family. 
and a, a young lad, about 21, called um, Rodin, who's murdered somebody. And the, the, both their reasons for their crime are very different. But he has the two of them sitting together, reading the Gospel of John, um, and reading the story of Lazarus, rising from the dead. And, and both of them, both Rodin and Sonia, um, saying, seeing that this was their way forward, that the way out of the position they were in was, was, was to understand Christ's teaching of the, the, ability, the, the possibility of resurrection. So it, it's all in this story. It's given a big story form. But the whole thing comes back to you have to accept your responsibility. The only way forward is to accept your responsibility. And both Rodin and Sonia, in their own way, have to accept their responsibility, although the, the causes of their crime were very different. This is, and this is Dostoevsky's message. And it's been well said many, many times, as what would the 20th century have been like if Russia had chosen to follow Dostoevsky rather than Karl Marx? And today, today, I think we have a similar challenge. We're not faced with, well, those theories are still out there, but the, the, the problem today, in our society today, is do we accept a society in which truth, facts, and things like that are disregarded and replaced with what I want it to be? I would like it to be. There was a, a little study I saw come out on the internet just a couple of days ago where I was looking at um, words in political statements. And way back in the 1980s, it was full of words like decision and consequence. And now it's full of words like feel and ambience. And you, you can see how, it, how it's changed. That the way now we have of looking at sin is, no, it's, it's just somebody else's choice. You, you mustn't challenge their concept. You mustn't challenge what they believe. You must accept what they believe. Um, that's yours. It's just a different way. Look, you know what I'm saying about. We haven't got to go down there, but um, some of the ridiculous things that are being said at the moment, like you can't be a male or female even. This is the challenge for our century, I think. Where is uh, at the turn of the uh, last century, the 19th to 20th century, this was the decision that the world faced, basically, do you follow Dostoevsky or do you follow Marx? So they wouldn't have seen it in that context then. But that was the choice. Today, we've got a similar decision. Yeah. Do, we, do we follow what we can see or what people want to hear? Do we challenge or do we not challenge? Do we call for repentance? Do we not call for repentance? That, I think, is the challenge. So we see this in this story. Let's come to this story now. And I want to look basically at one verse. And so we'll go come to that one verse, which is verse 22. Verse 22. Jesus says to the woman, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll look at the context again in a second, but this is so you know where I'm going. You worship what you do not know. What Jesus says to this woman, you worship what you do not know. Now, play a mind game. Put yourself into the 21st century today with today's news reporter talking to somebody on those lines today. What would be said? Well, you have a culturally valid experience that is um, relevant to your time and situation. And I really get it. 
I get it. I really understand it. So that um, you follow on with your cultural experience. And I will, you know, you, you know exactly what I'm saying. That's what would have been said. What did Jesus say? Well, politely put it, he said, you're wrong. You worship what you don't know. You're wrong. And he followed it up with, we worship what we know. We're right. There's no pussyfooting around here. No, it's, and for salvation is from the Jews. He made it rock solid clear. And I'm sure he did it politely. And I'm sure he did it um, in an clearly an engaging way because she carries on talking with him. And he did it in a truthful way. And I'm sure it was warm and empathetic. I'm sure it was all those things. But nevertheless, it was blunt truth. You're wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. End. Now, we need more Christian speakers like that. And we need more Christian teaching like that. And I would say we would need more of everything like that. One and one today still makes two. Even if you don't want it to, it does. And without getting arrested, which I'm getting close on to sometimes, every single hair cell part of my body is labeled with a genetic code which says I am male. And... Those of you who are female, every single cell of your body is labelled, you are female. And there's no amount of hormone surgery, whatever else, can change that. But you can't say that too publicly today. You're offending somebody. I've just said to Ken at the start of the service, actually, just as an aside, that um, I I mustn't give too many names, but I'm aware of a situation where an 11-year-old girl has gone to school and said, she's 11, I want to be a boy. And so the school have turned into a boy. And they forgot to tell the parents. And the parents didn't know. And the parents were sending her off in the morning as a girl. She gets to school, changes, becomes a boy. Comes and that's what's going on today. And I, I'm personally aware of that situation. It's not, not, I'm not, can't tell you where it is, but it, it's, it's, that's what's going on today. No, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's challenging. That's challenging. Now let's put that into context to see exactly how challenging this was. Okay, and the, the, the amazing uh, miracle that's happening here. Okay, so uh, Jesus leaves. He, he left for Judea and departed again for Galilee, verse 4. And, they, and he had to pass through Samaria. They went through Samaria. Now the geography here is pretty simple. Um, if you think of Israel as a long square bit, in the middle you've got Jerusalem. Um, up the top, you've got the city of Galilee. Between Jerusalem and Galilee is a big mountain range. Okay? Now, you're not talking about the Mendips. You're talking more like the Alps. You know, it's a big, it's, it's, it's pretty heavy mountain. You know, it's not easy to walk through stuff, but it's, it's there. That, basically, was Samaria. The usual way of getting from Galilee to Jerusalem was to go around the coast or up the Dead Sea, but you went round it. You didn't go through it. Samaria is... Um, Samaritans, they're Samaria, Samaritans. What the, the, this, what's historically happened is after the exile, uh, way back hundreds of years before, some people were left in the land who were Jews, 
And they stayed in the land. And they slowly, little bit by little bit, became more and more like the, the people of the land. And so when the Jews came back, the Jews hated them because they weren't pure Jews. And the Samaritans hated the Jews because they'd come back, uh, you know, much the same as today. So th- there's a huge amount of antipathy between these two groups of people. I mean, it's not like they just don't like each other. They, they you know, they, they, it's almost your duty to be rude and insult and attack one if you see one on either side. It, it, it's a lot, a lot of friction there between these two groups. So the fact that he went through Samaria was, was a question. But he went through Samaria. So they come to a town called uh, Sinchar, near the field of Jacob, which is given to St. Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. Um, and Jesus was weary from his journey, so he sat down. It was about the sixth hour. Six hours, six hours after sunrise. This is midday. So this is midday on a very, very hot hill in a, in a, in a, uh, a countryside you're not too happy with. It's, you know... Um, so Jesus, here's the first question. Jesus is left there. The disciples, we know, they went on to, to buy food in, in the town. And they leave Jesus on his own. Now, why? Um, obviously, they're going into this Samaritan town to get supplies. And they probably feel that the more of them there is, the better. And there's a bit of, I'm sure, a way up. But what's the safest thing to do? The safest thing to do is leave Jesus here and we're all going together. And didn't even leave anybody with him. They're obviously that concerned about going into this town and getting supplies. And they leave Jesus by the well. Now, I suspect if you've been to these corners of the world, you know, by the well, there would have been a, uh, a place to sit or something like that, and probably some shade. So it would have been a place to rest and a place to stay. So Jesus is sitting by the well. Then came a woman. Now, that's the first thing. She was a woman. Now, a Jew is not going to go and talk to a woman. So there's the first taboo that's broken. If you're going to be politically correct, he would not have spoken to the woman. Then she was a Samaritan woman. This is even crazier. He goes and speaks to this Samaritan woman. She isn't going to approach him. He says to her, give me a drink. Now, Jacob's well is still there today. And I looked it up on Wikipedia before I came out. Um, Anyone like to hazard a guess as to how deep it is? She says, um, this this well is drink. You're asking me for for, for water, and it's a a deep well. Uh, You haven't got anything to get water out with. That's what she says to him. How deep was this well? According to Wikipedia, it's 130 foot deep. You're not going to turn out with a bucket and get water out of it. Getting water out this well is jolly hard work. You've got to pull up a rope from a hundred and odd feet to get a bucket of water. So what Jesus asks of her is not insignificant. He turns around to this Samaritan woman and says, will you work for me? Unpaid. And I'll have your water. Now, If you were her at that point, you've come to draw water and there's this strange enemy of your people asking you to pull out the hundred and odd foot water. What would have your response been? Don't think it would have been, oh yes sir, I'll do this for you. Would it? 
it would have been tinged, I think, with some sarcasm. And I think if you, if you read this, it's not difficult to see that there is some needle in the woman's approach to Jesus. How is it that you, a Jew, asking from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, there's a bit of needle going on here. Um, and Jesus just says, um, give me a drink and I'll give you living water. Okay, now put yourself, um, the woman says, sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well is deep, understatement. Where do you get this living water? Now, what, you know, you, you put yourself in her position. This guy says, I'm going to give you living water. You'll never have to drink again. What do you now assume? He's not only rude and abusive because he's talking to you, he's a nutcase as well. I mean, how is he going to give you living water? Put yourself in her position. Are you, and the, but she takes him on. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Again, a clash between the Samaritans and the Jews. Our father gave us this well, not you. Getting a bit heated now. She was no shrinking violet, was she? Remember that the Jews worshipped God in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped God in the hill shrines of Samaria. There's lots of hill shrines. And the big argument was, did the Samaritans have a right to worship God in the hill shrines? This was the big argument. So when Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, he's implying, he's talking about they're worshipping in all these hill shrines. And Jesus says to everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And then he, he, he talks a bit more about who he is. And then she says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or will have to come to draw water again. Now, I'm sure that was sarcasm. You know, I mean, she's sitting there and there's this guy telling him, I'm going to draw up living water. You never drink again. You never have to draw water. 140 foot. You know, never have to do it again. Uh, you know, the guy's off his head, isn't he? Surely he's, the heat's got him. Someone's got him. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And now we see a slight change. Now she starts thinking, hang on, you're right in saying you have no husband. And he then starts revealing more of himself to her. And this is the point she suddenly starts, there's a change in attitude. How do you know I haven't got a husband? And the, the man you're with now isn't your husband. Now, this tells us a bit about her. Um, you know, what do you, what do you want to make of her at this point? From my perspective, I suspect she wasn't a young woman. I suspect she was... Um, the other reason I say that is because she was able to go back to the village and get a whole village to come out to see Jesus. This wasn't some 18-year-old flirty girl um, who'd gone up back in the village and said, oh, follow me, and they all did. So I suspect she was quite a senior woman. And I suspect um, the reasons she had four husbands could have been quite honourable because, you know, she's older, people die in those stages. Um, but then the, the woman, the man she's with now is not her husband. That's not quite right. There's something wrong there. So what she's picking up now is that Jesus knows that. And he knows she's a Samaritan. And he knows she's the woman. But she, he's still speaking to her. So now we see this change in attitude because he speak he knows about me but he's speaking to me so there's a change in attitude and then she asks this question the question this is like 
the, you know, the political question of the day. Our fathers worship on this mountain. In other words, they worship in the hill shrines. But you say in Jerusalem is, is the place the people ought to work. That is the straight, in-your-face, big question. This is the, the issue that the Jews and Samaritans have been fighting over and has caused all this tension. For hundreds of years, there is no right answer. You know, they've been fighting. Now, given the situation we're in, Jesus on his own, out here, in the middle of a, this place, this woman there, his disciples gone away, and he's beginning to get some rapport with this woman. She's beginning to listen. The atmosphere is changing a bit. Initially, she was antagonistic, and now she's beginning to think. And then he asks her this big question. Well, I'm looking back in my life and can think of a number of situations where I've been in similar situations. And what I normally always do is fudge it. I'm nearly always tactful. I nearly always find a way to keep the person on side and at a later date I'll come round and I'll address the other issue. You know? What did Jesus do? Woman. Believe, which woman is a sign of respect. It, it, it doesn't translate well. It's, it's, it's a polite way of addressing a woman. Um, believe me, it should go madame, it would be in French or something. We don't have anything in English. We wouldn't say missus or something, but it, it's, it's a polite way. Jesus says to her, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So the first thing he does is there is a consideratory statement. The time is coming when we'll both be wrong. But as for now... Smack him with the truth. No hiding, no messing around. He says it like it was. Okay? You worship what you do not know. Nothing politically correct about that. It really was, you're wrong. The Jews are right. That's the context. She was obviously uh, taken aback by this. And now you, it's going to go one of two ways. He, she's either going to throw him down the well or something's going to happen, you know. But you can't share the gospel without understanding that the Holy Spirit is there helping you. We, we can't look at any form of evangelism or any form of outreach without trusting that the Holy Spirit is working with us or we're working with the Holy Spirit. And in this, the Spirit's clearly been working on this woman because then when she hears that, she says, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says to him, I who speak to you am he. So he was able to say to her who he was after, after he's put the truth out there plainly, clearly without any watering it down or changing it around. And if we want to see the Christian gospel in our time, in our place, thriving, these are some lessons we have to learn. We have to learn to stand up and be counted. We have to learn that there will be difficulties in society. They don't like it. They won't want it. But there will be amazing results and it, it, it's quite interesting that this was the first revival of the New Testament and it happens in Samaria that the last place you think it would happen there's 
I don't know whether to say this this morning, but I think I'm, I just as well hang myself properly. Um, there's a sort of similarity here between uh, Christianity and Islam. Because uh, Samar- the Samaritans came out of Judaism, where they worshipped the one God, but they worshipped the one God with a twist. And Islam today worships the one God, but from a whole different perspective than Christians worship uh, the wor- worship. The only answer to Islam is to say it like it is. It's not to pussyfoot around. It's not to uh, try and, and, and water it down or be conciliatory. You have to say it like it is. You say it with respect. You say it with love. You say it without violence. And you say it without threat. But you still say it like it is. And that's what Jesus did here. The result was, this woman goes back to the town she must have some influence, surely. Um, they all hear what she says. They all come back and see Jesus. And now the unthinkable happens. The disciples who have crept into this village to buy food, probably quietly and not make too much of a, of a fuss, stay for two days. I mean, just, just imagine that what's happening socially amongst these people now. You know, imagine being a, a shopkeeper in this village. And, and these people come in, these Jews come in, and they're all standing close together, and they're, 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 you can see, you, you, know, you can't send them away with nothing, because that's not done, but, you know, the, the, the sort of nonverbal communication would be going on, and, be, you know, and then they, they all walk out like this, and they come there, and they find Jesus talking, and they marvel that he was talking to a woman, it says here, but no one dared ask him anything. And then they, there's... Next time they go back in the village, they say, oh, you know, come on in, stay with us for two days. Why? Because Jesus kept to the truth. He had confidence in what he was saying. He had confidence in the truth, and he had confidence in the Holy Spirit. He was working with the Holy Spirit. The number of opportunities in this whole story to stand aside and water it down like every other verse. And I'm sure if I was in Jesus' position, I wouldn't have got past the first conversation. I'd have been appeasing and being nice on the very, very first conversation. And Jesus was. But he nevertheless never watered down what he said once. He said it gently, but he said it like it was. You don't know what you're doing. You, you're, you should not be worshipping in the hill shrines. That's wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. Now have some salvation. Challenge for us. When we hear the stories of Jesus, look for those moments of challenge. And moments of challenge are going to come with a quiet sort of expectation that somebody has to change their mind, has to change their way, has to change something, has to reappraise themselves, has to look at themselves. That's the real meaning of repentance, to be prepared to change. And it's not a one-off. It's not you get saved I'm saved, I repented, that's it. It's a continual life journey of continuing to change, continuing to grow, continuing to listen, continuing to become more like, more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And that, that's the meaning of this word, metanuio. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty, for how in-depth it can be sometimes and how simple it can be sometimes. We, we thank you, Lord, for this story. And, and the example of this woman. We just pray, Lord, that you give us the confidence and the courage to speak out openly, but also the grace to do so 
in, in a way that is non-offensive and is gentle and empathetic, but help us not to water down or change what we say. Amen.